as we go into the scriptures together again, read something of Christ's final victory over sin and over Satan and over death and over hell. Revelation, please, continuing there in Revelation. <coughs> now we're in, we'll be just closing off chapter 19 today and moving into, or preparing the ground, moving into chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. <coughs> I do want to just close off chapter 19 because I want to make sure that we leave chapter 19 with a sense of the glory of the Lord, a true vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is and as he will be. It's one thing to have a vision of him and we must have a vision of him as he was in his humiliation, as the babe of Bethlehem, as the boy of Nazareth, as, as the man of Galilee, as the itinerant, the, as it were, the, the peasant rabbi, as the one who hung on the cross in shame and in rejection. We must have a vision of him as he was in his death, but now as he is in his glory and as he will display that in a coming day. And I want us to leave chapter 19 with that sense of we all looking on the glory of the Lord. It is essential to have a vision, a true vision of the true Christ, because when you're looking on the glory of the Lord, it will affect you. Now, it will move you in gratitude and thanksgiving and in worship and in deeper appreciation of him. Yes, It'll do more than that. It will actually change your character. And the thing that matters most for the Christian is that we bear something of the character of the Lord Jesus as we move through the world. They see the difference. They see something about us that's Christ-like. Our very character, which influences how we behave in so many ways, just shows something of who the Lord Jesus is and what he's like. So it's we all looking on the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image, right? And we are then changed in ourselves from glory to glory. So the longer you are saved and the longer you're a Christian, the more Christ-like you should actually become. Now, you know, some of us have been Christians for a very long time and you feel very rebuked when you think like that because you know how far short you fall. And the blemishes and the faults that are still there. So the process of transformation goes right on. And we're very grateful for that fact that when we get there to heaven, when we see him, we shall actually be like him. And we shall be looking at him as he is. The same Jesus that God has made both Lord and Christ. Therefore, when we were doing chapter 19, the thing we honed in on in particular was the, the names by which the Lord Jesus is called as he's depicted there as the rider on the white horse coming from heaven to execute judgment upon those representatives of Satan working in the world to do the dragon, to do the devil's business on earth. His representatives, the beast and the false prophet as he comes as like the rider on the white horse and the significant part is the names that he carries. So let me just go through them with you and seal it off. Have a look there in chapter 19 and verse 11. I saw heaven open, a white horse, he that sat upon it, was called Faithful and True. Isn't that lovely? Faithful to his promises, faithful to his word, true in all he does, true in all he says. As one of old says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will judge truth in truth, and in righteousness, faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, faithful to his people, faithful to his God, as I, you might say, and then absolutely true, straight up and down, clear in everything that he does. Righteousness does he judge and makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire that penetrating, nothing escapes, absolutely discerning, and on his head were many crowns. Remember last week, Psalm 110, the scepter, the rod went out of Zion. It went past the boundaries of a city. It went past the boundaries of a mountain. It went past the boundaries of a nation. 
and he is conquering all things and bringing it into subjection into the hand of God. And there are many crowns for he has conquered many territories. And it says here, and he had a name written that no man knew. All right? A name written that no man knew but he himself. And that suggests something that there's something of a glory about the Lord Jesus which is beyond the grasp and understanding of a human kind. There's a glory about him which is in excess. It's beyond our knowing. It's past our particular capacity. You see, the Lord Jesus is depicted here and he's on this white horse and he's riding like a man and yet he's actually acting like God. He is judging like God and yet visibly to be seen, he looks as it were as a man. And what you're looking at when you're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory, you're looking at the great mystery of godliness. Mystery suggests something that's beyond, you know, you wouldn't know it unless it was revealed. And then it gets revealed and there's something even more that you cannot grasp, that God has been manifested in the flesh. The Lord Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. Now, if you can grasp that, then you're more than human, if I could put it that way. Because there's something beyond your understanding in the mystery of godliness. The Lord Jesus himself said that. He said, no man knows, and the force there is no man fully knows in Matthew 11, the Son, except the Father. Because only deity can really comprehend deity. And the fullness of the Lord Jesus is beyond the understanding or beyond our grasp, because we're not deity, we're not divine, we are not God, all right? Actually, it's even beyond the full grasp and understanding of the angels. Now, they're greater beings than we are, right? But they cannot fully comprehend the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something written there that's beyond, that you can't see, that you can't read. It's too difficult to understand. It's beyond our grasp. It's too bright in its glory for us to be able to comprehend and look upon with our eyes. You remember even those angels as they were surrounding the throne in Isaiah and seeing the Lord high and lifted up and his train, his robe is filling the temple. You see, what they do is they actually veil their faces and they cover their feet as though well, we, we can't quite, not quite look there. The glory is too bright. We, we can't quite go there. It's something that we cannot stand in. And all they can do is say, holy, holy, holy. That's even the holy seraphim merely point up, point out his distinctiveness, his difference. He is far above all. Remember the hymn we quoted. But the high mysteries of that name, an angel grasp transcends. For the Father only glorious claim, the Son can comprehend. We can know him, but we cannot fully comprehend him. There's more to him than we have yet grasped. When we see him and we're like him, and we see him face to face, We'll know him so, so, so much better. And yet there's glory still that's above us. And we stand in awe this morning as we've been thinking of the theme of the Lord Jesus as the conquering Christ in that tremendous coming day. So then to verse 13 of chapter 19. It says there, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Now remember the significance of that because I, I'm going to point out, summarize his names, and summarizes offices, right? The vesture dipped in blood. Now, the battle hasn't even started here in Revelation, and yet there's evidence of bloodshed. He has already, before he comes back to put down evil, he has already gone into battle with Satan, and as the seed of the woman, he has crushed the serpent's head. But his own heel has been bruised. And remember that the victory of Calvary was made through precious blood. He suffered, he bled, and he died. He himself was the blood sacrifice for sin. He was the propitiation for our sin. It was his blood through which atonement was made. 
and Calvary and its battle and its victory and its shed blood will never be forgotten. Never. Not even in the day of coming judgment will that great battle of Calvary and the precious blood that was shed, it will not be forgotten. It is an essential part of his glory, the finished work of the cross and the shedding of that blood. And in that coming day of display, it's just pictured for us here that there's a vesture that's dipped in blood. And that garment is reminding us of the fact that he is the priest. I want to bring this out. Prophet, priest, king in the coming day of glory as he fulfills all those offices that are so important for the people of God and for the work of God and for the climax of redemption and for the glory of God. Prophet, priest, king. Here he is here. And there's the robes, as it were, with the blood that he is a priest. Now there's something, because that blood can bring souls to God. That blood was a sacrifice that satisfied God. That blood was the means by which he entered as a man into the presence of God. And whereby we can enter too with him because of the blood, you see. The battle that's being fought. The victory that's being gained. The conquest that's now over at the cross and through his death and burial and resurrection. Now the tragedy here is in Revelation 19, in the coming day of judgment, that his role as priest is no longer available. The sacrifice is no longer available. It has been available ever since he died. It's been available now for 2,000 years, to more than 2,000 years, yes, 2,022, whatever you like. That sacrifice is available for the sinner to come to God and to know through repentance and faith in that finished work that that blood can wash him completely clean and he could obtain the forgiveness of sins. But in the coming day of judgment, you see that sacrifice is no longer available because it's been rejected. You remember in chapter 15 what happened? They, uh, as the vials were to be poured out in judgment, it says there that John says, he said, I, I saw the heaven open. I saw the temple of God in heaven. And you think that's wonderful. In the temple there's a priest. In the temple there's a sacrifice. In in the temple there's a means whereby a sinner can come and obtain the forgiveness of their sins. But then it says, the temple was filled with smoke and no man could enter. You see that God was there in judgment. That's why. And when God moves in judgment, forgiveness is over. And there's coming a day, there's coming a day, when having rejected the sacrifice and the gospel of peace through the precious blood of Christ... All that now will be left is judgment. That's serious, isn't it? That's very serious. Now read on. His vesture was dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. All right? We didn't touch that one. The Word of God is the proof that he's the prophet. The priest, yes. Now we've got the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, you think of John 1, don't you? In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word there, the Word there is Logos, and there's volumes of theology written on the meaning of the Logos. I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to keep it clear and simple this morning. You see, what do we mean when we say Word? What do we think? You think of words. What are they? Well, words are means by which we express ourselves. By which we communicate to others, you see. And words are used to, for me to tell you what I'm thinking right now. I'm using words to communicate to you, to tell you what I'm thinking and what I want you to know. And you see, the words can be used to someone to say how they feel, what they want, what they know, what needs to be said. So just as words are used to express oneself, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the very expression of God. When God would communicate who he was, when God would communicate what he wanted, when God would communicate how he felt in love towards a sinful world, he did it through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's message. He is God's messenger as well as his message. He is the one through whom God has made his thoughts known, through whom God has made his wishes known, through whom God has made his message known. And if that's not enough, 
through God, whom God has made himself known. God expressed himself in Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 1. In times past he spake unto the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he spoke unto us in his Son. Now the incredible thing is it doesn't say he spoke unto us by his Son. It's actually, it's actually in his Son. The point being, yes it was in what he said, but it also in what it is, is he is expressing himself in who he is. And who the Lord Jesus is, as well as what he said and what he did, is the full and final expression of God. And the Lord Jesus was the messenger, a bit like Hebrews where it says he's the apostle and the high priest. There's another two titles for him. And as the apostle, he comes out from God with a message for the people. That's what the apostle does. As a high priest, he goes into God to represent the people before God. As the apostle, he comes out from God, representing God with a message for the people. So he's both the message and he is the messenger. And he came as the messenger and he certainly spoke the words of God. He said that in John's Gospel. The words that I speak, they're not my own. The Father who sent me, it's his words I'm speaking. Then he says, the works that I do, they are not my own. The Father who sent me, he it is who's doing the work. So, putting it all together... Everything that he said, everything that he did, was God speaking to man. All that he was, was a revelation of the message of God speaking to man. He was the living word. So as he comes out now in all his glory, as the one who was once the priest and still is for his people, but no longer available for those who are not his people, for it's a day of judgment, he comes out in the fullness of the Logos of being the Word of God. The one who has expressed God fully. That's why John goes on to say, talking about the Word in chapter 1, he says that he, the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father he has declared him, you see, that's the word, declared him by what he is, by what he said, by what he did, and in all the glory that was veiled when he came will shine in that coming day and we'll see him as he is. The word of God. And so what does that make him? It makes him now into the prophet. We understand the role of the prophet. And Moses predicted this very beautifully. He said, look, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up like unto me. And that's exactly what happened. All right. More than that, and I'll give you the last touch on the idea of the prophet and the word. Think about Matthew 17, is it? The Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, they went up to the mountain, Peter, James and John and the Lord. And he was praying and he was transfigured before them. I like that. He, they, they saw him there, the man of Galilee. Yet as they looked at him, something seemed to break through. And he had this incredible change and his garments began to shine. And they, they were glowed like the light. They were so white that no laundromat on earth could have made them any whiter than that. And they were overawed and the cloud is there. And, and there he is, he's talking firstly to Moses and he's talking to Elias. Now listen carefully. Who was Moses? Didn't he speak the law for the people? Wasn't he the voice of God for the people? Moses? And Elijah? Or Elijah? Elias? What is he? he was a prophet? Wasn't he speaking the word of God for the people? So, in the light of this incredible scene, Peter, like us, says the wrong thing. He says, Lord, this is good for us to be here. That was a good thing. That was the right thing. Then he says, well, let's make three booths, you know, three little shrines, as you were, if you like to call them that. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elias. All right? Not a bad idea. The lawgiver, the prophet, and the Christ. Great idea. And there's a voice out suddenly. A voice comes from out of the cloud. Now, notice what it says. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Listen to him. You've heard Moses, the voice of the lawgiver. You've heard Elias or Elijah, whatever you like to call him, as the voice of the representative voice of all those other prophets. 
Now God is speaking through his son. Listen to him. Now that's the meaning of Christ as the prophet. He brings the word of God, the voice of God, into the world that needs it, into the life of the individual believer as we move day by day. He reveals God and he carries the message and he is himself the messenger. So he's the prophet as well as he is the priest. And then, of course, it rounds off very, very beautifully. We'll just read down to it. Verse 14, The armies which were in heaven followed upon him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We spend a lot of time on those themes. I'll move on because I just want the names. I want the names of the Lord Jesus, the glory of the Lord to, for you to see it. He hath on his vesture the outer robe, right? And on his thigh, double written, a name which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no sovereign above him. There is no Lord above him. He stands Far above all, absolutely supreme. And as he who is the priest, he is also the king. As we saw in Psalm 110 last week, Melchizedek, the priest, the king, the king, the priest, God over all, blessed forever, the word of God, the full expression of God, the revelation of God, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in full display, in all his splendor, in all his royalty, authority, in his dignity, in his power, in his absolute supremacy. And who can stay his hand in the day of judgment? Who can stand before him? And as you read down the chapter, the battle begins. And before you even start, the actual victory is assured. Look what it says here. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun in the full light of heaven's approval and he cries with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them the flesh of all men both free and bond small and great I mean this is a this is a fearful picture because it's actually calling out to the birds of the air to celebrate the final fall of evil and declaring very plainly that once this battle's over, all that will be left is that which can be devoured. That's it. And it will be devoured so that there's no trace of it left. And really the angels are announcing <coughs> a tremendous victory before the actual battle begins. The thing hasn't started yet in our reading. But the victories are short. And in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse <coughs> and against his army. So you've got the battle is getting in order. You've got the forces of evil represented here on earth, all the forces of evil, marshalling themselves to oppose the rider on the white horse who is none other than the Christ of God None other than the one who would have been their saviour, but now the patience of God has run its course and he must come to be their judge, for evil must be put away, either forgiven and atoned for or completely removed in judgment. Now that's the, the scene of what you're looking at in the battle. At the end of it all, there's just flesh to be devoured and the birds will clean up the battlefield and every sign of evil will be removed. That's the picture. <clears throat> Verse 19, and then the outcome, and the beast was taken. These are Satan's representatives. These are the ones through whom the dragon has worked. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. 
So you've got a battle, you've got a total disaster on the one hand, you've got total victory on the other. The beast, the false prophet, all of Satan's representatives, powerful as they are, and all those who have chosen to follow because they've been deceived by the false prophet, the whole thing is wiped out and the judgment is complete. As in chapter 17 and 18, we saw Babylon, that is the sinful society which has been created with the power of the dragon using his emissaries on earth to make it happen. That has fallen and it has come under the judgment of God. Now we see Satan's emissaries, Satan's agents working in the world brought to nothing, rather to be cast into that lake of fire and of brimstone. Let me just read you First Thess- Second Thessalonians. Because, see, this is John giving us a picture of it. <clears throat> Paul actually gives us his explanation of it all, and he uses words rather than pictures. <clears throat> and he says, look, let no man deceive you by any means. In verse 3, Second Thessalonians 2. Don't let anybody deceive you, he says, for the day, that is the day of Christ. And that's what we're looking at here as the Lord Jesus comes out in power as the great Messiah, the anointed of God. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, you know, who this great leader really is and what he represents. He opposes, he exalts himself above all that's called God all that is worship, so that he even, as God, sits in the temple of God and shows himself that he is God. Remember not that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know, you do know this, he said, I explained it to you. What withholds, what is restraining at the present moment, that this revelation of ultimate evil, the ultimate revelation of the ultimate evil of Satan and his emissaries, will be revealed in God's time. All right, but in the meantime, something is restraining, is overarching in government to control and to contain. These words I'm using are very significant as we go to chapter 20. <clears throat> For he says, the mystery of iniquity. And that is the way in which evil works and the methods that they use and the program that they have and the goals that they want to achieve. It's already working now. It is. It's working in our time. It's been working ever since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many antichrists have already gone out into the world. And the whole system is gathering itself together. Only he who now letteth, that's a bad, not a bad translation, it's more, we don't understand the word. He who now restrains, he will continue to restrain until he be taken out of the way. So you've got the hand of God and probably correct to say the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within the world holding back the tide of evil as the blazing light of the glorious gospel of Christ shines through the darkness of our present day. That power that can break the power of sin in the life of any man or woman. That power that can dethrone Satan in any situation or in any soul. There is that which is keeping Satan from exactly bringing everything to a head. And then shall that, but when that's taken out of the way, that restraint, the wicked or the wicked one shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. There, that's Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, Revelation 19, with all powers and signs and lying wonders represented by the false prophet, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So refusing salvation, God shall send them strong delusion. They shall believe that lie that all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that's his... I'm not going to go through the details of it. I want to direct you to these truths. And I want you to have to move from chapter 19 and just go into chapter 20 but just go with that, the afterglow of glory of who the Lord Jesus is and how it will come into full display in that coming day of Christ when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
taking judgment upon all who believe not and dealing with every agency of sin and of evil and in chapter 20 dealing with Satan himself this is big alright this is big <clears throat> not just with his agents not just with his followers not just with his converts but dealing with Satan himself the society he created Babylon fallen beast false prophet representing his powerful agents taken the lake of fire but now in chapter 20 the Lord Jesus himself is going to deal with Satan going to deal with the very source of the evil you see that Satan is the source of the evil that is in the world he's the reason why how evil and why evil came into the world he is the reason why the world right now is as evil as it is. And it's worse than you can imagine. Don't go there, the depths of Satan. And now in chapter 20, what we're going to see is the root cause of it all finally brought to judgment. The conquering Christ finally will triumph. Now chapter 20. And I need to give some introductory remarks so that you understand how we're looking at this chapter. We're going to look at it as it is. And we're going to cover the chapter the same way as in which we have covered all other parts of the book. We have seen how it represented so many lessons for the present, how it represents so many truths also about the future. But it's not all about the future, it is also got a, uh, it's all about the present, the present situation. You will notice we've not speculated about anything. We haven't got, sort of put times on events. We haven't put names of people on events. We haven't put names of countries on events. We've labelled nothing. We've not even attempted to create a timeline out of the book. And we have pursued that framework which we stated at the beginning. We will continue to use that same framework. Not a framework that I made or anybody else has made. The framework in which, by which the book of Revelation actually explains itself and we will stay with that. The book of Revelation, which sadly has become such a disputed book that many preachers won't preach from it. That's terrible. Seal not up the words of the prophecy of this book. We will be looking at it as it says it is. It says this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you miss that point, you've missed the point of the entire book. This book of Revelation is actually telling us where the Lord Jesus Christ is now. Remember the visions of Christ? Even the Son of Man, as he's overseeing the, the candlesticks, he's up there. The vision in heaven, on the throne, he's right up there. Where he is now. What he is doing now. What he will do in the future. It's revealing his glory. It, look, the book is all about him. Please, if you've missed that point, then you've missed the whole point of Revelation. You're reading it incorrectly if that's not always in front of you, number one. Number two, the book, uh, the book itself says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's how it starts. And remember what else we noticed? It, it's, it's a book of prophecy. You're not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Now tell me, what does prophecy mean? So, well, it tells us all about the future. No, that's half the story. Prophecy is God speaking his word. He speaks it into the present. That's what the prophet did. He firstly spoke God's word for the time, at the time. He also spoke God's word that went past the time and into the future. So it's a book of prophecy. It has application to the time as well as opening up truths about the future. Next, it is a pastoral book. What do you mean by that? A pastoral book. It's written to Christians who are really in trouble. You know, the early Christians, they must have been in a state where they thought, well, the Lord's gone. You know? 
the disciples are getting, well, they get martyred one by one. The pressure from Rome, this wretched Nero, etc., etc., etc. You know, we're going to get obliterated and wiped out. And then they read the book of Revelation and they read it and they say, oh, that's interesting. In about two and a half thousand years' time, looks like we'll get some relief. No, see, you've missed the point. It's not all about the future. It's as much about the present as it is about the future. And they read this book and I tell you what, they were thrilled. Oh, they knew about beasts and false prophets and what they stood for. They knew about the mystery of iniquity and what that stood for. And they were lightened up to realise their place in the world, the reality of a world of opposition and hostility, to be there as the lights of the world, to be there under the keeping hand of God, to be there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see? And they knew the future was assured for Christ was on the throne already. That's the point. So it's a pastoral book. It's written for the encouragement of the people of God. And it is a mis- it has encouragement for all the people of God at all times and seasons. It is very, very relevant. And remember, please, remember, please, it is a picture book. All right? What you're getting is word pictures. And you look at the picture and you get the message that the picture conveys, the general message. There's not a lot of detail sometimes in the picture. When there is a bit of detail, it has a a point that it wants to draw your attention to. The artist paints the picture to give the message of what he wants you to see. Now that's the way in which it's conveyed, a picture book. Remember we also govern the whole book by these words of the Lord Jesus in the ascent, just before the ascension, when he says it's not given to you to know the times or the seasons. Now, sorry, that is what it says. So if you think you've got it all worked out that the Lord's coming in 2040, well, you can work it out if you like, but you don't actually know. Sorry, you just don't know. Because it's not given to you to know. I mean, he was coming. How many times has the Lord been coming? How many beasts have there been? And how many false prophets have there been? And how many what's have there been? Well, it's not given to you to know, but it's, given, it's revealed to you to understand and to grasp the way in which Satan works and the way in which God works and who God is and who Satan is. And that's the whole point of the book. It's timeless. It gives us lessons on God himself and how he works in blessing and in judgment. His character, his standards and his ways, they're timeless. And if you haven't got this far in the book of Revelation that we've read it together and learned something about God and his glory, God in his person, God in his ways, I tell you, God in his blessing, then we've missed the whole point of the lessons. And it gives you timeless lessons on Satan himself, and we need to know that because we can be very ignorant about his devices. But this book leaves us in no doubt. It reveals to us something of his character, of his intentions, and actually just how evil he is. This book really starts to open up how evil evil is and who Satan is and what he intends to do and what he wants to do and his character is unchanging as evil. This whole book will give you a better understanding of the world in which you and I are currently living. It helped the early apostles, the early followers of Christ as they had it read to them and they went round the seven churches and they read it one to the other. They got a better understanding of the world in which they lived and why they were living in that world. Our understanding of the world and our place within that world. What to expect, where things are going, why things are as they are. It will help us and give us a clear Christian view of the world. And finally, of course, it tells us of the glory and place and final activities of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to chapter 20. And we haven't got there yet. Because I've got to lay this foundation. Do you know why I've got to lay it? Because chapter 20 is a minefield of controversy. A minefield. There are so many viewpoints on all the details of chapter 20 that if it boggles your imagination... You read six different points of view and you think, well, I've come to the end of it. Oh, no, there's another six. And after that, you'll find another six. And they're all right. You ask them. You ask those that espouse all the viewpoints. They're all right. Absolutely right. And it's a minefield of controversy because people think it's written all about the thousand years and that's the end of it. Then they think it's written all about the number of resurrections. How many are there? How many resurrections are there? Well, it's just something in the when we read through about the first resurrection. I think there must be a second. Oh, I can tell you about another viewpoint that says there's a third. But I can see another viewpoint again that tells you there's a fourth. So where do you stop, you see? And the trouble is, unfortunately, 
And there's variations of all these themes, right? There are those that say about the thousand years, oh, I'm an amillennialist, I don't believe in that sort of thing. And then some of them say, oh, I'm a premillennialist, I believe that, in that sort of thing. But I think the Lord's going to come first before this thousand year begins. Or the next lot says, oh, no, no, it's not like that at all. It's, I'm a postmillennialist. We'll get, we'll get the world straight first, then the Lord will come. Well, keep going, because it'll take you more than a thousand years to do that. <laughs> you see what I mean, though? Premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist, then preterists who say, well, the whole book was completed and finished in all its meaning by AD 73 when Titus and, you know, smashed the temple and just persecuted the Jews in a way you couldn't imagine. Now the tragedy, and within that, by the way, there's variation after variation after variation. And I, frankly, yes, I'm not going to say I read the ball because I can't get to the end of the number. But what you find is, you know, everybody's got a, th- a theory of prophecy and then they go straight into, say, chapter 20, or they go into any other chapters of the Bible about prophecy, and they start to fit the verses into what their preconceived framework. That's always dangerous. You never have a framework and then put the scripture into it. I said we had a framework to look at Revelation. I didn't make the framework up. I just told you what the book said about itself. All right? That's fine. But when you get a framework of thought and theology and you want to fit verses in, what you'll find is some of them don't fit too well. So you're sort of a bit like a jigsaw. You put the wrong piece in the wrong place and you bang it down hard and you make it fit. All right? Sorry, but every preconceived framework, you'll find scriptures taken out of context and hammered in or made to fit. And like the jigsaw, by the time you're finished, you find you've got some holes here and holes there because you ran out of pieces. So you just blur them over. It sounds awfully cynical. And I don't mean to be cynical. Look, fellow Christian, it's about the coming of the Lord. It's about the coming of the Lord. <laughs> Do you want to fight about that? And this is the tragedy of how Satan has worked to shut up the words of the prophecy of this book. Because every viewpoint on prophecy is an unfortunate situation where those who hold it hold their viewpoint very tenaciously. And may I say they hold it pugnaciously. Do you know what a pugnacious person is? He's in the ring and he's having a fight. right? And by word, if you don't agree with my point of view on prophecy and Revelation chapter 20, well, probably you're not even saved. you know. And it's really quite a dreadful approach. I don't want to get into any of that, nor am I going to get into any of that. And I just want to say again, just take the glory of the picture. We'll find there's glory in the picture that transcends all particular frameworks. For it is the glory of the Lord. Never go into scripture with a pre-made framework of thinking and then interpret the Bible. Let me go off track here. I remember once being in a Presbyterian church and they appointed new elders one Sunday morning. Fine. Great. And the elders had to agree to certain terms of appointment. Fine. And they said an amazing thing, which left me shattered. Um, And it actually said that they, you must agree to interpret the Bible through the Westminster Confession. I'm not speaking against the Westminster Confession, by the way. It's a wonderful confession. You don't interpret the Bible through anything. You interpret the anything through the Bible. Right? You don't do it that way. You do it that way. The authority is the Bible, not a confession, not a creed, not a framework of thinking. You will spoil the word of God by bringing it into a framework that you or man has made. You will always spoil it, even though it may have some glorious truths about it. Secondly, and finally, let me just say this in the, in the interpretation. Would you please remember, and always remember that better men than you and better men than me have had a different viewpoint of some parts of Scripture. And I mean better men that God has been pleased to use in a far greater way than he'll ever use you and he'll ever use me. So let us leave everything in the hand of a mighty God. Because when we get home to heaven, we'll know the truth in its fullness and in its detail. What really is the structure of chapter 20? We'll go through it. But look, there are three major pictures in it. Three theme pictures. I like little videos, if you like. Three little videos. Several pictures in the video. The first one is about Satan himself and his ultimate demise. The breaking of his power and the final 
judgment of himself, of the devil. Alright? The second picture presented is a beautiful picture of Christ reigning with the blessed. And then the third picture that's presented is the picture of final judgment in the great white throne and the destruction of the last enemy. Alright? Now please, Satan, the breaking of his power, his final demise. Two, Christ and his reign with the blessed. Three, the final judgment itself, the great white throne. Let me read, and I won't go too much longer, but I want to leave you just with the picture so you go away and think about it so we can move into it. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. I saw an angel. All right, have you seen that angel? Get it in your head. This is a picture book. Get it up there. There's an angel. He's coming down from heaven. Mm. He's clearly moving in the direction of God, isn't he? And he has a key, the key of the bottomless pit. And he's got a great chain in his hand. Key, that's significant. Bottomless pit, that's where the, that's the devil's home, you know. He's got a key. He can open and shut it. He's got authority over it. There's a great chain in his hand. You got the picture? Now, be careful. It's just an angel. We're not looking at Michael. We're not looking at a whole host of angels. We're just looking at an angel. It's not even the angel of chapter 10 whose head goes right up into the heavens and whose feet, one stands on the land, one on the sea. It's an angel. Right. What does he do? Verse 2. He lays hold on the dragon. That's amazing. A mere angel gets hold of the dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. See those names? It'll tell us something about who the devil is and his character. So this angel, he just goes up to the dragon and he just lays his hand on him, takes him like that. I mean, this this dragon, didn't we get a picture of him, the red dragon with a tremendous tail and he swept a third of the stars of heaven to the earth? Didn't we see him in his tremendous power and intention of evil as destroying the man-child, the Lord Jesus, before he was born and then persecuting the seed of the woman, the people of God. Here he is, an angel just takes him. All right? This great creature of tremendous strength. And this is him. And he binds him a thousand years. I mean, there's no struggle suggested here. There's not a whole army coming out to beat up Satan and stand on him when he gets chained up. It's not just what Get the picture, just an angel. There's no struggle. And then it says, bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him. It doesn't say he set a seal on the pit, by the way. He set a seal on him. That he should be deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed. He must be set free again after that period, great period of time. Now, straight away, just, just think about what you've seen because what you've got is, is a picture of Satan, but you've clearly got a picture of Satan weakened, haven't you? Weakened. Weakened. An angel just takes him. I mean, the notion of a chain hanging on to the prince of demons is, is a ridiculous concept, but it's a fact you pictured as as it meaning that. So Satan is weakened. He's mighty restricted. You try doing tricks when you're tied up in a chain. You're not real good at them. All right? You get the idea. There's a restraint, a restriction. He's contained as well. He's, he's in that bottomless pit. He can't roam like he would like to over all the earth. And actually, he's sealed. Now, what do you think it means that he's sealed? I used to think he was just sealed in the pit. Well, really and truly, think about the way sealing is used in Revelation. Think about the 144,000. Think about the angels, I should say, sealing the people of God. In other words, put God's seal on them. Say, identify who they are. Get the notion? Who they are. The seal is on the forehead of the redeemed, identifying whose they are and to whom they belong. In other words... Put an advert on this evil thing so that everybody knows who he is. 
Could well be, you know. I'm only staying in the, in the framework of the book. And there he is, and it's, mind you, once, once his cover is blown, he's not really good at deceiving anymore, is he? He doesn't do it very well. It's a lot more difficult to do. A lot more difficult to do than what you could do when you could work completely undercover. And I want you to show you there that he is weakened, restricted, contained, identified, but he is not destroyed. That's what you've got there in the first picture. Very briefly, verse 7 to 9. You can go away and think and we'll go through it. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He shall go out to deceive the nations that are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints round about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven to devour them. So suddenly you see Satan now unrestrained. Unrestrained, right? And under God's will and permission, he is set out again on his mission on the nations. He doesn't get out. He is actually let out, if you like. And he persecutes the people of God. Then the third picture in verse 10 is the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. This is his final judgment. This is his lake of the lake of fire. This is torment forever and forever. And in verse 14, death and hell, that is his weapon. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. His weapon, death, and Hades, his prison house. What happens there in verse 14? They're cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. From those readings, we will move on to the bigger consideration of who Satan is. And I want, we need to understand his character more. We need to understand how God has dealt with Satan in the past, how he's dealing with Satan in the present, and how he will deal with Satan in the future. By the time we finish, we can't be ignorant of his devices. And we need to understand evil as it is and God's intention. Thank him to put it all away. And Jesus shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for these blessed, these comforting words, we give our thanks this morning. Pray that we may go away with a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might be made again to look on the glory of the Lord. We might be made again to have our hearts lifted up to the joy of his coming, the hope that is set before us. We might rejoice again in the fact that nothing shall stop that day happening. And in that day, in the fullness of it, we'll know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be our blessing and our blessed portion throughout the remainder of this week or until our Lord shall come and we shall see him. Amen.